when I talk about this to people who don't have a religious background and or are not religious currently, it sounds crazy because they're like, why don't you, why didn't you just like give up this theology and, and throw it away? Yeah. And in some ways I'm like, yes, I understand that question. In other ways, I know the, what the way that I felt and the way that I felt was, how do you say it was, it was gut wrenching to, to, to do the deconstruction work that I was doing because up until that point, I had a very defined way of viewing the world that was very easy to digest in some senses, right? Like you were given all the answers, right, wrong, good, evil of God, of the enemy. And so when you live in this black and white cosmology, everything is sort of spoon fed to you. Of course, the issue being I wasn't fitting into that, that paradigm. Hello and welcome to Out Loud, a podcast by and for queer people of faith in the South. Here we tell our stories of varied religious upbringings, messy coming outs, and the gift of community with one another. I'm your host, Greg Thompson, and a special welcome to everyone joining us live today at the Q Christian Fellowship Conference. QCF is a fantastic organization that brings together LGBTQ plus Christians and allies. I first attended the conference way back in the pre-pandemic days of 2019. Out Loud was just getting started, and I loved coming to the podcast room and hearing just these incredible in-depth conversations with leaders in our community. And so today I am so excited to be kicking off the programming on our virtual podcast stage. Today we have Lucas Wilson joining us. Lucas attended gay conversion therapy while studying at Liberty University and not only lived to tell the tale, but became an advocate for abolishing this practice altogether. A PhD candidate at Florida Atlantic University with a Master of Theological Studies from Vanderbilt University, Lucas has begun working in the field of critical evangelicalism studies. Most recently, he has filed a lawsuit calling to question whether religious colleges should receive federal funding while actively discriminating against LGBTQ plus students, which is something that has been getting lots of attention over the past year. Lucas identifies as gay and uses the gender pronouns he, him, is. Lucas, welcome to the show. Greg, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to chat. So I want to start with the question that I ask a lot of folks at the beginning of my podcast episodes, which is, um, tell us about the religious or spiritual background of your childhood. So I grew up, born and raised in Toronto, Ontario, and I come from a family of five. I'm the youngest of five, and I have three brothers and a sister all of whom went to church much longer than I did when I was a kid because my family, like every good Canadian family, stopped going to church and went to the cottage <laughs> when I was young. And I, so I think for me, because I didn't have as much exposure to church when I was around, you know, going into, well, between eight, grade eight and grade nine, I decided that I wanted to go back to church. I wanted to, you know, not just go on Sundays, but also become involved with the youth group. And I think in large part, I chose this was, you know, because I felt like I was missing out or I had missed out on a religious sort of experience. And I, I then started going to my, my church, which was not too far uh, from my house every Sunday, every Wednesday, you know, then also of course, every youth group event, you know, going to, you know, snow camp and all this kind of stuff. Of course, you know, here being, being here in Canada, we had snow camp and then ultimately, you know, Christian camp, joy Bible camp down the road. But for me, uh, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. My, my parents weren't necessarily uh, religious, though my mom, I think, you know, uh, could best be described as 
having been haunted by her Baptist demons. But my dad was agnostic and the rest of my family, by the time I was going to church, really had nothing to do with, you know, Christianity, specifically with evangelicalism. But from there, I decided that I wanted to go and get my my foundation in a Christian education. I decided that I was going to go to the one and only Liberty University. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get into that. So what was the church that you were going to growing up and what was like attractive to you about getting involved there? Yeah, so I think, again, I, part of it was that I felt like I missed out on on this religious component of my life. All my siblings seemed to have had much more exposure. They were able to go to church. They were to go, able to go to, you know, Sunday school. And I, and I did. I mean, I went up to a book grade one or two, but I, we stopped. And so I think that was definitely a motivating factor. I think this is also the time that I was beginning to realize my sexual orientation. I mean, I had realized it from a young age, but I think I was really starting to make itself much more apparent by the time I was, you know, going in into high school. And so religion for me, I think offered a cover, a covering over of my sexuality, something that I could hide behind because I knew growing up that being gay was not something that was accepted within my family. And that's not uh, to say that my my entire family were homopho- were homophobes. Only one member of my family was a homophobe. That's my mom, and she made it very clear when I was young. You know, Toronto being Canada's biggest city, we have a really big pride parade. And you know, for instance, one time we were going to the cottage, and we were leaving Toronto, going to to Niagara, where my cottage is. And on our way, we were passing you know downtown on the highway, and my mom went on about all these disgusting queers, you know, dancing and fl- flaunting their their stuff on these floats, you know, during pride parade. And that was one of many messages that made it resoundingly clear that being queer uh, was simply not an option within this family. Again, my dad was not a homophobe. My dad was this hippity dippity, you know, do your own thing kind of guy. But he passed away when I was in in grade eleven, and so for me, not having that person who would have accepted me uh, present, I think pushed me further into the closet, and ultimately, you know, uh, I, I I stayed there for for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. Was the church you were going to, did they have any um, stance on sexuality at that time? Yeah, so the church, and I'm realizing I didn't answer your question, if you're not squinted, but the church itself, I, it was, you know, I, I've thought about this a lot because I, I was recently interviewed asking about specifically the church I went to when I was younger. And I don't remember there ever being an official sermon or an official talk given at youth group about homosexuality. All of the conversations about homosexuality were very much sort of sort of took place outside of the pulp or beyond the pulpit. These were conversations between, you know, friends and you know, during, you know, small groups or one-on-ones and that kind of stuff, but it wasn't something that was talked about, though it was very very clear uh, the church's stance. Since I've left, the church has preached on homosexuality. And I think that that for me was confirmation of what I had been told for a very long time unofficially through the church. And it was a fellowship evangelical Baptist church. I'm not sure how common that denomination is in the States, but in Canada yeah. for the conservative churches, it's, it's pretty common. And so they were, again, without being explicit, they made it clear that it wasn't uh, okay or it wasn't an option to to be queer and a Christian. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's all too common for a lot of us, or at least it has been for me too, growing up in the Catholic church myself. There were a very, I I don't think I've actually ever gone to a church that had uh, a homily, as we say in the Catholic church, that actually explicitly said anything negative about the LGBT community. Um, But just like you were saying, it was a very different conversation 
outside of church in small groups or just kind of in the community itself. It kind of depends on the people and on their beliefs within that belief system sometimes. So yeah, I totally understand that experience for sure. What was like, what were maybe the fruits of church for you at that age? Like what, what was besides it being like a cover for you? Did, did your faith mean something to you at that age? Yeah. So I was uh, a convert. I, unlike a lot of my other friends in the, in the youth group and in the church, um, who were raised in the church. And so I think that because of, 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 you know, not being raised in church and also having this fresh exposure. It was, you know, I was on to, to put it in the best Christianese I know I was on fire for Jesus. And so I was the Christian kid at my high school. I went to an arts high school. The writing was on the wall. Like how did, how did they not know I was queer, you know, but I went to, to this art school and uh, I was like the Christian kid who would bring all my friends to youth group and to bring them to church. And so when I was at church, it was for me at the time, a vibrant spiritual community in a lot of senses. Granted, like, would I go back to that community? No chance in hell. But at the time when I was a high school student, I thought it was great. And I mean, you know, everything that was Christian, I I was excited about. So like, you know, Reliant K or Switchfoot, like any of these Christian (laughs) bands or, you know, like the different programming on on Channel 9, Christian television. I thought it was all great. Meanwhile, a lot of it wasn't. But I do stand by Reliant K and Switchfoot. And so I... I would say that the fruits of my time in, in youth group and in church, um, were, I think in some senses, a biblical literacy, right? Of course it was a very, you know, narrow understanding of scripture, but it certainly gave me, uh, a, a really strong vocabulary in Christian scriptures. At least I could talk about the stories might not necessarily have been able to tell you what they meant in a lot of ways, or at least I'd have told you what they meant in a very particular sense, but as for the fruits, I mean, it gave me, again, this literacy, it gave me this community, which at the time was phenomenal. Granted, it was a, it was a conditional community. Had I identified as queer or had I you know, lived into that, I would have not been a part of this community. But at the time, it was something that was exciting. It was new. It was fresh. And I think it, it aligned with a lot of my interests, which I've been exploring since I've left evangelicalism, which include you know, questions of ethics and morality and what it, what does it mean to live a good life? And, you know, how do I make the lives of others better? Granted, the content of that, of that, you know, sort of, uh, of those questions uh, is very different now. Meanwhile, the form though, or what motivated those questions or me to explore those questions, I think has remained constant. So I would say there was at the time a lot of good. And I think at the same time that was commingled with a lot of really detrimental and harmful theology. Yeah. What was, so kind of coming out of that, that period of time, what then drew you to, to Liberty for your, for your undergrad? Yeah. So I, I decided that I was going to go change the world for Jesus. And so I thought that I needed to first have my, my anchoring, my foundation in a Christian education. And so I uh, applied to Liberty. I got a, a scholarship to go though. Like I say now, in order to get a scholarship, you need to be doing scholarship though. I don't know if I can define what I did at Liberty university as quote unquote scholarship, but in either case, Liberty was super exciting for me. I think this, this is, you know, talking about the excitement of youth group in Toronto, which, you know, for those who aren't from Canada or aren't familiar with Canada, Canada is a very, there are not nearly as many Christians in Canada per capita as there are Christians in the U S. And so Toronto and specifically going to a school downtown and more specifically going to an art school 
was, it was not in vogue to be a Christian. And so hearing that there was this school where I could go that, you know, and of course there were Christian schools in Canada as well. There's one even in Toronto, but hearing about this school in, in Virginia, even though I did not want to go to the States, I, I was raised on a very strict diet of anti-American sentiment, but you know, nonetheless, I, I, you know, I, I was off, I should say I was offered an, a trip down to Virginia. And at first my, when I was offered the trip, I was like, I don't, I don't really want to go to Virginia for a weekend. Like that doesn't sound like that much fun. I was convinced otherwise. And I went down and I had a great time. And I think that again, like in line with the, the excitement of youth group, there was an excitement about Liberty. Liberty is if you've ever been or, or go on campus, it's this massive campus, at least in comparison to again, schools here in Canada, it's, you know, seeing all of these preppy because everyone there is very preppy, you know, Christian young people, as they would have said in my church and also at Liberty was, was, was enthralling. Like, I was so excited to see that there were so many Christians gathered together in one spot where we could, at least this is what I thought going into it, could grow spiritually together, that we could deepen our faith, you know, cultivate a, a Christian worldview even deep or even more so than I already had. And these were the sort of the draws. These were the big reasons why I wanted to go. And you know, if everything in America is bigger than it is in Canada. And so that was huge. But another motivating factor was that I knew that Liberty had a conversion therapy program. When I went down to visit, I actually went down six times to visit on chartered buses before going to Liberty. But I used to go down on these, on these visits. And during one of the visits I saw during chapel, they had these announcements that were on, on the, the screen that were rotating through throughout before and after chapel. And one of the announcements was that there was, it said something along the lines of like, are you struggling with same sex attraction? And I was like guilty. And I, uh, they said, if you're, you know, if this is you, then you can contact this person, Dane Emmerich. And so I took a mental note, Dane Emmerich, whoever this guy is. And I asked some folks later, I was like, yo, who's this Dane Emmerich I saw? I saw some sort of announcement on the, you know, the ads on before or after chapel. And they, my, my friends at Liberty told me who he was. And so I then from that point forward, I uh, knew that if I were to go to Liberty, then that would be, I, I would be able to go speak with someone about my quote unquote struggle or my quote unquote sin. And this, again, I wouldn't have called it conversion therapy at the time because I didn't necessarily have that vocabulary, though I've learned, you know, I learned throughout the time after, there and afterwards that it was conversion therapy. But I think for me. Uh, hearing that I could have someone I could speak to about this, because up until this point, I was not allowed to speak about, you know, my, my quote unquote sin, my, my struggle. I was forced into the closet. And so having some sort of outlet or knowing that there would be an outlet to talk about this was really exciting. And ultimately, of course, uh, you know, my time there did not uh, proved to be all that exciting. Uh, there were a lot of roadblocks. There was a lot of damage done at Liberty, but the conversion therapies program you know, or, you know, this, this man I could speak about my, my quarter puts in with, that was a big motivating factor for why I ultimately went. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It can be so liberating to actually speak to someone about, about your sexuality. I, I think at that time in, in life, but also if you've been in communities that just haven't been very accepting, haven't been very affirming, it is helpful. I remember for myself, like taking my struggles, as I would have kind of called it too, to the confessional with priests and, and having that kind of weight lifted felt, felt really good, but ultimately it didn't necessarily like solve what was going on for me. And so it can be liberating, but also confusing. I, at least in, in my limited experience of kind of carrying that burden with someone else in my religious community. What was it like sort of sharing that for the first time with someone in your community there? How did that feel for you? I think that, you know, you're absolutely right. This like dual valence of that experience of actually talking to someone about 
you know, being queer. I, th that for me, you're right. It, it, it's both, it was both incredibly liberating because you actually got to voice something that you were never allowed to voice up until that point. Other than I think I, I, I talked to one person on MySpace way back when <laughs> I was queer, but that putting that aside, you know, I didn't, but, I, and so there's that, there's that liberating aspect, that, that ability to just name the experience, you know, up until that point, being shrouded in secrecy, being shrouded in silence, you have all of a sudden this opportunity to speak it. But of course, the, the tragic irony there is that you're not going to be received well, although it's going to be cloaked as um, acceptance. It's going to be cloaked as love the way that, you know, the person talks, my conversion therapist talked about homosexuality with me. He made it seem like he was doing God's work. He was doing what was God's will and that it was loving. And so it's this, it's this push and pull, right? Or this like negative and, and positive in some senses experience though of course at the end of the day it's leading to death dealing sort of theology or it's inspired by death dealing theology theology and it, and, it and it you know sort of perpetuates this death dealing theology that you internalize and to such an extent that you become your own jailer you become someone who controls and monitors himself or my and for my in my case i controlled and monitored myself according to this theology that ultimately did not you know align with my my lived reality which was being a queer queer man so I think to, to, to rewind a little bit though, it wasn't just with Dane Emmerich, my conversion therapist that, that I spoke about being queer. That was actually the first time I ever did was when I had this really bizarre, if we can call it romantic, we'll call it romantic encounter with, uh, one of my spiritual life directors on my hall. Liberty has a, a leadership model where every dorm has resident advisors, spiritual life directors, or SLDs and prayer leaders, and then the rest of us plebeians who weren't, you know, spiritual left to be on the, the spiritual hierarchy. And so one of my spiritual life directors, though, one time, again, we had this very bizarre encounter. I won't go into too many, too many details. And afterwards, he wouldn't speak with me. And I was, you know, dead over it, right? This was my first encounter, romantic, you know, encounter with anyone, really. And he, again, wouldn't, wouldn't talk to me. So I did what most, uh, you know, angsty teens would do. I wrote a poem. It was called, do you ever notice how cold it gets in the fall? <laughs> it was like just so awful. But I, I write this poem and one time my friend, he and I were at work together and he, he knew something was up. He knew something that was an issue with my spiritual life director uh, and me. And so he said, what's wrong? And I said, well, I can't really talk about it, but I can read you a poem I, I wrote. So I read him this poem and whenever, whenever we would talk about anything that was uh, a little bit, se uh, anything sexual, really, he would get these like nervous quivery lips and so he and this is the first time i noticed them and he had these like kind of like oh, oh, oh like I, my yeah like shivering lips and he said uh, i think i i think i know what you're talking about and through your poem and i was like oh no well what what do you what do you think it's about and he said well i don't want to guess and be wrong because if i'm wrong i'll embarrass myself i said why would you be embarrassed he says because i think i struggle with the same thing and the moment i heard him say struggle with the same thing i was like like dog whistle you're queer too and so we kind of fumbled back and forth and it was, you know, I think, I mean, I struggle, no, I struggle with the same, and we both like, you know, uh, blurted it out and he was the first person I told, but of course I didn't feel comfortable putting all of myself onto him, like my burden of what had happened with my spiritual life director and I, and I, so I decided that I was going to not just talk to him about it, but I was going to talk to the Dane Emmerich, the conversion therapist, but having him it was a very weird sort of journey because he and I both, it was like, we were so, all we wanted to talk about was that, because again, we didn't really know many people that who again, quote unquote, struggled with this, but at the same time, we were both, you know, ardently fighting against it. And so it was this constant like titillation or like, like draw 
And then also this constant repulsion that we had learned or adopted or affected from the, the theology we'd been learning and the churches we'd gone to and the school we went to. And so it was this very weird secret world that he and I occupied. And of course, there were a number of other peers on Liberty that I eventually met, who I eventually met later through the group conversion therapy program, which is a whole other story. But it was this really weird world where, again, you have this community, but it's also an anti-community because the community itself is trying to literally destroy itself, right? It's literally trying to erase all queerness. And of course, if you're erasing that queerness, you're erasing a constitutive part of who these people are. So it was this very strange sense of community and anti-community that was held in tension. That's interesting because I, I you you said that and I immediately thought of like what else what what else might be similar to that I'm thinking of like an AA group where it's like people coming trying to not drink anymore and so in a way that could be an anti-community but people keep coming back to something like that there is a sense of community how is what you're talking about with like these group conversion therapy sessions how is that different yeah so I I I think you're right. In some senses, there are parallels to an AA meeting. I've been watching a lot of Euphoria recently. So there's the Narcotics Anonymous. So this is this is something that I think has a number of parallels. But I think the difference, there are a few differences. One is that Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics, Narcotics Anonymous, those folks are not trying to erase constitutive part of who that person is in the sense that they are not trying to get rid of like what, you know, every human has. Although they might be trying to push against an addiction, that's not necessarily something this person was, you know, is, is, a, is a, a, what's the word, an intrinsic part of who they are. And this is something that was acquired. This is something that was learned over time. And I think that, you know, if we are to think about the comparison between AA or Narc Narcotics Anonymous and conversion therapy, we would then be equating homosexuality to an addiction. Um, and I don't think I'm addicted to anything. I think, well, maybe, maybe some coffee or whatnot. But again, like, I don't think that you know, my sexuality can be understood as an addiction. I think it's, I understand it as a, a really great part of who I am, but I think you're right in the sense that there is this community ideal of suppressing part of who they, they are. And also in conversion therapy, a, a group ideal of suppressing who, who they are, which of course is the, 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 as that aspect of their being, being their queerness. But no, I think there are, there are a number of parallels, but I think there are a number of like necessary differences and important differences between the two. But to give you an idea about group conversion therapy, it was an incredibly bizarre little group to put it mildly there. We met at a secret location. The, the location was not disclosed until, you know, just before the meeting. And we would go to these different, you know, secret places. We went to these secret places on, or we were told to go to these secret places on campus. I only went once, so I can't speak past my one experience, but I went and I was so excited because you have to, you know, of course, picture it at the time I was, you know, trying to fight against being queer. But at the same time, I was a college student who was very excited to find out that there were going to be other queers I was going to be in a, in a room with. So I was both incredibly excited, but also incredibly nervous. You know, my secret's about to become public in some sense where these people are going to know that I'm queer. Of course, the what sort of bound the group into into shutting up was the fact that we were all terrified that anyone else was going to find out. So you kind of knew that, you know, it it was going to be known by some people, but most likely they're not going to tell everyone else because then they'd be out of themselves. So I went with my buddy Parker and we had dinner at the cafeteria beforehand. And so we go to the, this room, 
And it was this, I think it was like 15 or 20 guys and they were all packed into this like hot, sweaty room. And we all sort of pile in and there's like a couch and there are chairs and people sitting on the floor and whatnot. And the conversion therapist, Dane Emmerich is there. And in some ways this, this operated as, you know, gay conversion, speed dating. It was like, <laughs> find out, like be on a campus where you can't talk about being queer, then put all the queers in a room. What do you think is going to happen? You know, <laughs> conversion therapy. It's like in Exodus international conferences where they, you know, buy out a hotel and it's like, mm, you're buying a hotel with a bunch of queers. Like, what are you thinking? Anywho, I went into this room and it was, you know, back then, again, we were all doing our best to, to fight against being queer. And part of what we were taught in conversion therapy. They said something along the lines of, you know, Dana Merrick said, it's not a matter of what you do that'll make you straight. It's just a matter of what you do that'll make you straight. You're like, what did you just say? Like they say, well, no, no, it's not about performing masculinity, but it's about performing masculinity. If over time you start to habituate a masculine persona, you will eventually become masculine. And then if you become masculine, then you're going to find attraction to women because According to, you know, evangelical conceptions of masculinity, heterosexuality is necessitated within that, that weird construction. And so part of this was that we had to, you know, affect or perform a brand of masculinity. So we, I get into the room and all these guys who they were, you know, uh, they were doing their best. They were going to go to college, try literally and figuratively. And they were, you know, it, it sounded honestly like <laughs> the way I described it in one of my articles one time was that it sounded like the, the rhetoric or the script of a, of a locker room porno where they walked in, they're like, Hey man, what's up dude. And you're like, Oh, that sounds so it's like, what's the word? It's sincere. Right. Yeah. And like, for me, I, I love sincerity. I don't care who you are or what sort of where you are on the gender spectrum. I like it all. But when you put on something that you're not, whether you're trying to be more feminine than masculine or otherwise, or just anything that's un, as, uh, unnatural to who you are, it just doesn't ring authentic. It doesn't ring. You know, it, it's, it's unattractive for me. So I remember being like, what in the world? Where am I? Like, what's going on? And the problem was, or not the problem, I guess at, at the time I saw it as a problem was that I, 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 I saw one of my campus crushes. I saw one of these guys who I thought was so, so cute. He, he looked like Ricky Allman from the Disney channels oh like, yes. for the future. Right. And I called him Phil in my head. I called him Phil. And so I see Phil and I had, you know, always wondered if his sustained eye contact was an ex was a mutual sort of expression of, of desire. And of course, seeing him in group conversion therapy cleared things up pretty quickly. And he and I started talking. And over time, he he expressed that he was also, you know, we, we had a mutual interest in each other. And eventually I found out that he had a girlfriend. And I was like, Phil, I mean, I'm no cheater, so I'm not going to like be on this journey with you and be your, you know, your side hustle while you have a girlfriend and I'm, you know, a, you know, an accomplice to you cheating. I said, so I, I don't, I didn't know you had a girlfriend. Now I do, but I want you to have the choice to go and do whatever you want. If you want to, you know, stick with your girlfriend, that's fine with me. I understand. And again, looking back, I don't understand, but at the time I, I understood because I thought, you know, what we were doing was wrong, but I said, or if you want to be with me, I'd, I'd, I'd be down as well. Even though, again, I was fighting as, as hard as I could against being queer. The flesh was weak, I suppose. And so Phil, uh, we'll call him Phil. Phil came back to me and said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pursue this. We're just going to, you know, remain friends. And that was that. And I was like, okay, Phil and I lost contact, uh, we, but we were still friends on social media. And years later, I, I looked him up and sure enough, Phil's no longer just uh, dating the gal that he was dating at Liberty, but he's married to her and has kids. And that's a very common story for a lot of the folks I went to conversion therapy with that. These are men who expressed to me that they were not just bisexual. These were queer or pardon me, gay men. They were only attracted to men who are now married to women. And I think that's just one example, Phil being the example of many 
of how conversion therapy tethers people to lives that are neither fit nor fair for them or their wives, right? Like, I don't think that their wives should be in these relationships either. And I think that there's also, again, a whole psychology behind why they, they would be there. But nonetheless, I think this is a, fills an example of, again, one of many of, of where conversion therapy leads to inauthentic subjectivity and authentic lives. Yeah. Well, how did your, how did you break away from that? What was your kind of enlightenment moment and how did that impact your faith while you're wrestling with all that at the same time? I would say grad school saved my life. I first went to McMaster University back in Ontario for my MA. And it was there that I started having conversations with people who were very, very different. I remember one of my office mates, <laughs> she was great. She and I were chatting and she said to me, she was, she asked something about me being religious. And she's like, so are you one of those like Christians who doesn't have sex and doesn't do this and this? And I said, I said, not only am I one of those, I'm one who tries not to masturbate. And she's like, she looked at me and she said, Luke, she goes, I've masturbated three times this morning. I'm sitting there. I'm like a woman master. Like she was blowing my mind. So it was, it was this moment where she, she was a, a wedge in this binary understanding of the world where I thought everything was so neat and organized and clear and meeting her among other folks, it began to break apart that binary, put that sort of wedge there. And, and I had to start really critically thinking about the world around me. Part of, part of what pushed me to think critically was the fact that when I got into my classes, I had no understanding of what they were talking about, right? Both my classmates, as well as the professors, I'm sitting in these classes and I'm like, not only did I not understand the readings for this, this week, (laughs) I didn't understand like the the actual, like basic conversations that were, that we were trading in, in the classroom and in the seminar room. And so that was a huge red flag, very alarming for me. Cause I was like, I know I'm not stupid. I just have obviously not been trained well. And so that really was the, one of the first moments where I began to realize my, my schooling at Liberty was so poor. And so I, uh, for anyone who's ever, you know, written a thesis, normally when you submit your proposal, you'll get, re- you know, either you'll get accepted or you'll get a few revisions. At worst, I've heard someone get rejected twice. And then their third try, they, they, they were given the green light to begin their thesis. For me, I wasn't rejected once, twice, three, whatever. I was rejected seven times. And only the eighth try did I get, you know, the ability to, to or the green light. And I remember being so frustrated, thinking to myself, what in the world? How do I not, how, like, what's wrong with me? And in some cases, I even said to my professors, I said, I don't think there actually is anything. I don't think I'm stupid. I think I just haven't been trained well. And so they were like, okay, like, we'll figure this out. And so, you know, over time, I eventually started, you know, gaining a literacy in academic writing and also academic reading. And that was part and parcel with how I began to deconstruct, not just, you know, the, the academic world or begin to like deconstruct so I could reconstruct and, you know, figure all the moving parts, but also that, that it certainly affected my faith and that certainly affected how I understood God. And at the time I was at McMaster, I decided that I wasn't done with, with studying. And I was still at this point, very, very evangelical. And I decided that I wanted to go on and do some more schooling more so, uh, in, in a, in a theological context. So I applied to a bunch of schools, eventually settled on Vanderbilt and off I went. And Vanderbilt was the place and Nashville was the place where I could begin to, I didn't, I I was able to have a a fresh start. I was able to not be identified as Luke, the evangelical or whatever. I I could be whoever I wanted and I could present whichever part of me I wanted. And so being at Vanderbilt, I decided that I was going to go in and present myself as a queer man. And it was very exciting. I mean, it was a whole new world. This is like, I think the apps were around, but I was so clueless that I didn't even know like what Tinder or any of these other apps were. And I only learned about them way late. And so I had 
a, a really sort of the sink or swing moment at McMaster, which ultimately gave me the abilities, like the academic abilities, and also the theological abilities to to go into Vanderbilt and and do and sort of succeed. But for for me at at this point, I was very much struggling with my sexuality. I was very much tr- struggling with reconciling how I understood God up until that point in a very circumscribed, narrow definition of the divine and trying to, to, to make that work with me being queer. And of course, you know, being queer and being a Christian are not mutually exclusive terms. However, being queer and being an evangelical biblical literalist <laughs> poses some problems, right? And I think that for me, having the ability, the time and space to think and also feel and, and emote and, and, and sort of live out my sexuality, that was huge for me. And I think for the first time when I was in Nashville, I didn't put my theology or my theory, because of course, after all, theology is theory at its most, you know, at its simplest uh, definition. Um, and so I put my, instead, my, my, my lived reality or my praxis uh, first. And I said, I'm going to go in, live out a queer sort of MO and, and think about it or theologize or reflect upon it later. So I, I flipped the script that I had been told up until this point, I needed to have a theology first and then live into it versus this way I was, I was living and then theologizing or, or, or reflecting on it later. And I think that was a huge paradigm shift for me in tandem with realizing that I didn't believe that the Bible were, was, was God's words that I think they instead were words about God. Of course, that for me, didn't make it any less holy. It just made it understood. I just understood it differently. But it was all these sort of working parts that divinity school, as well as, you know, secular academic, my academics at, at McMaster, and then ultimately my, my, my coursework at, at, at and uh, studies at Florida Atlantic University, all of these things worked in concert with one another to help me begin to critically evaluate who I am and also what my theology was and how the two didn't fit. So I needed to make them fit. Yeah, that's so interesting because that what you're describing is very similar to how I stepped into my master's program, which was also at Vanderbilt Divinity School. Uh, and it was right after I really kind of came to terms with my sexuality and was starting to come out to people. And so when I went there, it was this moment of like, all right, new chapter, new beginning. This is who I am, Greg, as a queer person of faith, not just Greg as a cradle Catholic, basically. And it's powerful. It's also challenging. I found it was challenging to then find a church once I was in a new place, totally displaced from the churches I'd been going to and now taking on this identity. It, it was, it, I felt like such a tall order to find any church that really w- felt like home for me. Did you, did you take on that journey? What was that like for you? Oh, I mean, it was incredibly difficult. And I think this is something that when I talk about this to people who don't have a religious background and or are not religious currently, it sounds crazy because they're like, why don't you, why didn't you just like give up this theology and, and throw it away? Yeah. And in some ways I'm like, yes, I understand that question. In other ways, I know the, what, the way that I felt and the way that I felt was, how do you say it was, it was gut-wrenching to, to, to do the deconstruction work that I was doing, because up until that point, I had a very defined way of viewing the world that was very easy to digest in some senses, right? Like you were given all the answers, right, wrong, good, evil of God, of the enemy. And so when you live in this black and white cosmology, everything is sort of spoon fed to you. Of course, the issue being, I wasn't fitting into that, that paradigm. Like I, as a queer man, just wasn't obviously in line with what they had been, uh, you know, espousing well for decades. And so nonetheless, 
have even like where I said, like this, the shift between understanding words about God or God's word and then understanding the Bible as instead words about God. I was sitting in my Hebrew Bible course and I I was in the middle of the, the back and I normally I sat in, on the aisles anyway, for whatever reason, I was sitting in the middle, probably sitting one, next to one of my friends. And I remember just being like, oh shit, like, I don't think that God, these are God's words. I think these words that I'm reading are incredibly important. I think that they, they point in a certain direction, but I don't think that these are God's words. And it was this moment in the classroom. Like normally this, these moments would happen out, out of the classroom or on my couch or, you know, in bed when I'm thinking, but it was in the classroom and I were being like, this is a plot twist. And even though that gave me in some ways a, a sense of freedom to, to explore and also to question, I didn't for a very long time in some senses. Like I was very still held, I held, how do you say, I held fast to conservative ideas in a lot of senses. And that, again, as time went on, it slowly and slowly loosened to the point where I'm now like often who knows land of, of you know, liberal land. But nonetheless, at the time, it was so hard. It was so hard because my world was so safe and secure. Having all the answers gives you a sense or affords you a sense of security and safety that was then because of my inability to accept the answers that weren't satisfying, that pushed me to a very uncomfortable place. It was outside of what I had known theretofore. And that was terrifying. I remember, I still, I, I miss, I miss the faith that I've had in some senses. Of course, in other ways, I don't at all. Like, I'm very glad to be where I am. But in some sense, to have that, 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 that sense of assuredness, that sense of security, that sense of safety, I miss that. I don't have that. I don't know what's going to happen in, you know, in, in eternity. <laughs> I would like to think I know, but I don't, I don't. And that is something that I certainly miss. Yeah. How would you, how would you characterize your faith now? I think I'm pretty Thomas Jefferson about things. I'm pretty deist. I, in a lot of senses, think that I think, I think it's intellectually dishonest to, to argue that there is no God. I don't, I am not an atheist. I also not an agnostic. Like I don't necessarily think that there's just like absolutely no way of knowing anything about God. I think there are some clues. I think there's some hints, but at the same time, I, I kind of think that God created the world and stepped back. And this is in large part because of my studies. I, I studied the Holocaust. My, most of what I do is the intergenerational transmission of trauma between survivors and their children and their grandchildren. And in taking, it was actually one class with my PhD supervisor, Dr. Alan Berger, who's the biggest mentor of all time. I was in his class and we were reading Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel is perhaps the best known Holocaust survivor. And Frank is perhaps the best known victim of the Holocaust. But as for survivors, Elie Wiesel, uh, who wrote Night, Nobel Prize winning piece of literature, just a, a phenomenal human, also a phenomenal writer, and he wrote prolifically. And so I was reading lots and lots of Bizell. I just, you know, all of his essays, his books, his whatever. Um, not all of them, pardon me. He's, he's written far too many for me to read. And Bizell, he was relentless with God. And I think that the Jewish model of protest, or at least a Jewish model of protest, I should say more accurately, not to homogenize and say all Jewish pro models of protest are the same, but uh, for Bizell specifically, he protested God. He said in a New York Times article one time, he said, you know, God, I just kind of want to get to the bottom here. Can we just like hash it out and like talk about what happened? Because I'm just not satisfied with your silence. I'm just not satisfied with what you haven't done and what you did not do and what you continue not to do. And so Vizel, though, I think contrary to some people's opinions or interpretations of Vizel, Vizel never lost his faith. He was still a committed person of faith. It was just that his faith, the content of that faith changed dramatically. And I remember reading Vizel. And it was at the time that I had read something or I saw something along the lines of someone, you know, had said that, that she was hashtag blessed because of, she got like a free uh, Starbucks coffee or something like that. 
And I was reading the cell and I read this text or the, pardon me, this post, this hashtag. And I'm, and I was putting the two in intention and I was like, wait a second, how in the world does this person, whoever she was, uh, talk about being hashtag blessed when down the road, so-and-so is not getting a free Starbucks coffee. So-and-so has a pretty de- bad ha- hand dealt to, to, to that. How, how could someone claim that God is taking a time out of God's, you know, agenda to, to, to come and give this, this gal a, a free Starbucks coffee. I was like, what in the world is that hubristic claim? And so I decided at that point, I was like, okay, I need to figure this out. Does God, is God a, a good God who, who is limited in God's actions or is God being that is not good and is, and is omnipotent and it does cause suffering or it does, you know, act or not act at certain points. Because I thought about this idea of a blessing, a blessing is an active bestowal from God to person. And so if God is not giving blessings to others, that would then therefore mean that God is intentionally or actively, you know, withholding gifts or blessings or whatever you want to call it. And I thought to myself, this, this is a thought that probably should have come to my mind years before, but I'm a, I'm a late bloomer, I suppose. And I was thinking about this and I was like, nah, like I cannot get on board with the idea of miracles anymore. And that was sort of this, again, another wedge in my, in my, in my theology where I thought God doesn't act in this world. If God acts in this world, you know, then that means that when God's not acting, God's doing some pretty messed up stuff. And so for me, I couldn't necessarily give up the idea of a good God. And maybe that's a fiction and maybe that's a fiction I'm willing to uphold and I'm okay with that. But what I can say is that if I believe in a good God, that for me precludes God acting in the world. Because if God is to be acting in the world, that means that some of the stuff that God's doing or not doing is pretty messed up. And so it was the Holocaust and in my study thereof that really pushed me to, to, to reconsider my understanding of miracles, which ultimately pushed me to reconsider my understanding of the divine. You've been in the media a lot over the past year with this lawsuit that you're filing with other students against the Department of Education, kind of calling out the practices from colleges like Liberty regarding conversion therapy. Can you tell us more about that and how it's going at the moment? So I first found out about the lawsuit through Facebook and someone had tagged me. They said something along the lines of like, are you or just someone you know, has he or she or they gone to an institution, a Christian institution and uh, been discriminated against? And someone tagged me, they're like, this is Luke Wilson to a T. And so, cause I had been writing and speaking about Liberty at this point for a little bit. And so I got tagged. I reached out to the lawyer. Um, the lawyer's name uh, is Paul Southwick. Paul Southwick is an absolute gem of a human. Paul is based out of Portland, Oregon. And Paul started uh, a nonprofit called the Religious Exemption Accountability Project, R-E-A-P, REAP. And I should put a little plug in, go check out REAP's work. They're absolutely phenomenal. And uh, a big thing that they're doing is exactly this, this lawsuit. So the lawsuit now has over 40 plaintiffs of queer folks who went to uh, religiously affiliated colleges or universities, whether that be evangelical, Mormon, Catholic, or whatnot, who were actively discriminated against uh, when they were there, whether that be types of conversion therapy, whether that means they were academically dismissed because of their sexual orientation or gender identity and or expression, among other, you know, quote unquote, that they would uh, deem a sin. 
And so the lawsuit is, yeah, well underway. And we are suing the U.S. Department of Education for giving taxpayer dollars. And every year there are uh, literally millions and millions and millions of taxpayer dollars given to religiously affiliated colleges or universities. And we're saying that if you are to discriminate against queer students, you should not be able to receive federal funds in the same way that you can't discriminate against students on the basis of race or gender. You cannot do so on the basis of gender identity, expression, gender identity and expression uh, and sexual orientation. So if you've ever heard of Title IX, Title IX is on the basis of gender, whereas sexual orientation, unfortunately, does not fall under that umbrella. So this is a landmark lawsuit that is allowing us to expand the protections of, of students. Uh, and those protections include again, gender identity and or expression as well as sexual orientation. And so, yeah, we're, we're right now, uh, we're in the middle of, of it. We're in the thick of the lawsuit and we're hoping for a big old W, uh, <laughs> hoping that the department of education comes to their senses and, uh, really, I guess maybe more accurately that the, the courts come to their senses and say, uh, it is not okay for these schools to finance their homophobia on the dimes of American taxpayers. Yeah. What's the, what's the timeline on, on this whole, I know these things kind of take a long time sometimes. What, what, what's that looking like? If in fact there is a, a positive outcome, then of course, then we're done. If it's not, if we lose this lawsuit, we can then appeal and keep going up and up and up. And I'm no uh, legal expert. I am no, I know very little about a law, about law, specifically American law. I, and, but what I, what I understand is that this could ultimately go to the Supreme court. And of course there have been some recent cases that have been uh, presented before the Supreme court that, uh, that, that ultimately resulted in a favorable outcome for queer folks, surprisingly with the way that the courts are, are stacked. But of course there are a number of other cases that were not, that did not result in a, in a favorable outcome. And so it really is, uh, up in the air as to what can or will happen. But it's been, it's been a, a weird journey, right? Because you're, you're putting yourself out there in ways that, I mean, I had been doing that beforehand, but in a way that now is uh, litigious, right? <laughs> There's some sort of like litigation going on. And so it's, it's a very weird process. It's also a very, uh, there's a strong sense of community that there are a number of us who kind of came out of the woodwork and were like, yeah, I identify as queer and I've been discriminated against and, and sort of having that, that sense of community of, of folks who know at least in part what it's like or what, what you've gone through. It's, it's nice in that sense for sure. Yeah, sounds like a much more generative community than than what you experienced with the with the group at Liberty. Strangely enough, I think you're right, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we do have a couple of questions coming in. I want to fit these in before our time is up. One one person in our audience here is asking, "What did you do during times when you said you were terrified of your faith that once was safe and secure?" Any advice uh, that you can give to those of us who may be in that situation right now? Is there any way to feel safe and secure again? I think there are two things. One's temporary and one's maybe, well, maybe both are long lasting. The first I was going to say is temporary. It's just having conversations and being in community with people, but hopefully that community doesn't go away. And I think it's also very helpful not to have just the community who holds the faith that you're deconstructing, right? To, to not just be talking to people who are perhaps more conservative or, or have identified as conservative or lived into a conservative theology. I think it's great to have conversations, part, conversation partners outside of the church. And that was for me, I was able to, because I was not fully, I wasn't raised in the church. I was always had, I always had one foot in one foot out. And so I think that having friends when I was in my, my, my graduate work who were Christians, that was super helpful. I think also a big part that's maybe a big ask is that one cannot really sort of like expect to have comfort and security in some senses, because at this point in my life, like I don't feel 
secure about what's going to happen when I die. <laughs> like I don't have any idea what's going to happen when I die. And that to this day has been something that's in some ways plagued me. And so I think I had to give up the expectation that I was going to feel safe or secure and I was going to ultimately really understand anything. And I think when you allow yourself to live into the question mark, when you allow yourself to not search for easy, comforting, safe, secure answers, you're able to begin to really live into what I would say is more so a reality than a constructed, well, everything's constructed, isn't it? But it's, it's, it's. It's maybe more a, a realistic way of, of being, because, you know, if we're trying to make something fit and it doesn't fit with the world, maybe that's our cue that we shouldn't try to make that fit anymore. But of course, the alternative is that there's just sort of this amorphous, you know, loosey goosey, who knows where we are sort of, you know, uh, paradigm or reality. And that's terrifying. But again, and that's not a helpful answer that I just provided <laughs> saying that you just have to give up your expectations for comfort and security. But I think that that's maybe the most realistic way of of putting it. But in the meantime, to have that, that community, to have that sort of like group of folks who, who are at least able to, to think through the narratives that you've been given up until this point, that's, that's super helpful and, and, and generative. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it, it's spoken like a true scholar living into the questions makes, <laughs> makes a lot of sense, but it, 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 it can be true. I mean, I, I think it, it, it allows you to, like you said, not not fit something into a category that doesn't that doesn't belong into and it allows you to be more grounded. I I, I totally get that. I, re I remember when I got to McMaster, there was one of my colleagues, she she said that the point of academia is not necessarily coming up with with answers. It's 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 exploring questions. And I remember being like, what does that mean? And again, I was fresh out of liberty. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. I have answers to like the entire world. Like, what does this even mean that you were not, we shouldn't be pursuing answers in the, in the sense that Luke's pursuing them. And over time, I realized how accurate and how honest her response or her, her, her statement was that in fact, we, we have a lot more questions than we do answers. Mm. Yeah. Well, on that note, we are out of time. Thank you so much, Lucas, for joining us. Everyone, if you'd like to learn more about Lucas Wilson, you can find him on Instagram at Luke Slam Dunk Wilson and on Twitter at Wilson underscore FW. You can also learn more by visiting our website, outloudstories.com. You'll find links to all of our episodes, including show notes and resources for each one. And while you're there, you can click the donate button at the top of the page to give back to the show. We run solely off of contributions from listeners like you. You can make a one-time contribution or give back monthly by becoming a member of the show on our Patreon page. And be sure to subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen. Leave us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find us. And you can find us on Instagram at OutLoudStories and you can find me, Greg Thompson, at It's Greg Thompson. And one final shout out to the folks at Q Christian Fellowship Conference. Thank you for hosting us today. And thank you for helping this community gather together year after year even virtually like this. It's been wonderful. Until next time, remember friends, queer people have faith lives too. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the rest of the conference. Mm -hmm.